to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome to Distressed Situations. We have a couple of firsts today. First, it is the conclusion of our first year of Distressed Situations. It's been great. We've had a lot of great guests, and we're looking forward to year two next year. The other first is we have our first former bankruptcy judge joining us today, and that is Leif Clark. He was a judge in the Western District of Texas for a number of years. I think over 25 years. We'll get him to give us the exact date or exact number of years. He wrote over 300 published decisions. He's acted as a mediator, and I probably had more experience with Leif as a mediator than any other form, even though I did appear in his court a couple of times. And he has advised independent directors and, in fact, is able to serve as an independent director. He's a wonderful guest. We're happy to have him here. And Leif, do you want to say a little bit about yourself and your career? Well, I think you've actually covered it pretty well. I was on the bench just a little over 25 years. The Western District is a big district geographically. San Antonio is included. Austin is also part of the district. Waco is part of the district. And El Paso is part of the district. And I heard cases in all four of those locations. So a pretty wide variety of matters. As you would expect in this part of the world, quite a few consumer cases, but more than a few business cases as well, including some of good size. So uh, it was an interesting tenure on the bench, and it's been an interesting time since I left the bench. I am, as you said, doing mediation. But I also have done quite a bit of consulting work and expert witness work for a variety of matters and have, as you said, advised boards of directors. Specifically, I had an engagement that involved advising a board that had been appointed to govern a post-petition litigation trust. And they had the obligation to independently evaluate whether a particular cause of action should be pursued in a situation in which the person who was the operating officer of the litigation trust was candidly conflicted out. They needed independent evaluation of the circumstance. And candidly, uh, some of the issues that are raised with respect to independent directors arose in that particular engagement. So, And there have been a couple of other situations in which I've been asked to advise uh, specific directors with regard to a course of action to follow and what steps to take. And interestingly enough, this has come up even in the context of mediation. It's a fascinating area and a growing area. And so I'm glad we have a chance to talk about it here. Thanks, Leif. So listen, we're going to talk business here in just a second, but I want to take this time to give you a chance to tell our listeners what you do for fun when you're not studying independent director legal issues. Over the last nearly 10 years, I've picked up the guitar again. I think I'm pretty good at it. So I play open mics and hang out with a lot of other musician friends and have acquired a bad habit of acquiring guitars. (laughs) That's a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you feel about having a lot of guitars around the house. What's your favorite uh, guitar lick? You know, it's an interesting question because there's so many different ones that I like to do, but there's a Guy Clark song called Let Him Roll. It's almost a talking blues kind of song, but it's got this really, really sweet little lick to it that it's just so engaging. And it's one of the best pieces of musical poetry that I think I've ever, ever come across. So I really like Hyde Clark. Okay, that's a good one. 
I like it. I haven't heard it, but I, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to look that up. So we're talking about independent directors today. I want to put a little context around what we're talking about in the context of a distressed situation. What we're talking about is a group of people that act as directors for a company. The board of directors role is to advise and steer the ship of any given company. But there's some duties and some standards of care that come along with that. You want to comment on that, Leif? Well, all directors have a duty of care and a duty of loyalty to the corporation. And that would apply to independent directors as surely as it does to all of the other directors of the corporation. So assuring that those two duties are attended to is critical for any director. Probably the one that becomes most important, candidly, is the duty of loyalty, because the case law that has developed over the years has been fairly generous about the duty of care. There is, of course, a place to which you could go where you would say candidly, well, you just you you were so careless that we can't find that you did anything but violate that duty. But it's rare to have that amongst directors. Let's put a point on that to violate the duty of care. You would always have the benefit of the business judgment rule as a as a director, right? Sure, that's right. And so you're violating the business judgment rule. And let's let's go to the extreme. You violate the duty of care by never attending a meeting. That would be a fine example. Never attend a meeting. You don't listen to the advice that are given by your accounting or your legal professionals. That would also be a violation of duty of care. That's correct. You don't review the information that is given to you that allows you to evaluate whether the company is or is not on the right road. That would be violation of the duty of care. All right. Now, let's talk about the duty of loyalty. The duty of loyalty is one where it's much, much easier to find violations candidly because mm-hmm. The duty of loyalty is pretty significant for directors. They have an obligation to be loyal first to the interests of the corporation. And that means that their own interests must be subordinate to the interests of the corporation. And if they take actions that are beneficial to themselves, then they need to be uh, scrupulous about making sure that in taking actions that might be beneficial to themselves, they don't in the process compromise their duty of loyalty to the company. Uh, this can come in the form of stock ownership, what is done with stock interest, and, and, and whether one exercises the right to sell or buy shares. And it may also involve compensation, uh, what arrangements are made with respect to compensation. And of course, it may also involve questions about attempting to shield oneself from liability in a circumstance in which the, the interest of the corporation may be greater than your own interest in avoiding liability. Or the interest of the corporation may be greater than your interests are concerned about protecting somebody else on the board from uh, liability. So these are all circumstances in which the duty of loyalty can be compromised. And so one of the things that companies can do when there's a perceived or real opportunity for a member of the board to be unable to exercise this duty of loyalty is to put in place an independent director. And so I've got a couple of hypotheticals here that I'd like you to react to and you tell me yes or no, this is a good opportunity to put in place an independent director. Does that sound okay? Sure. That'd be great. All right. So the company makes widgets. Company's had some financial distress. There's a board meeting. The board makes the decision that ongoing widget manufacturing is never going to be profitable in this particular company. And the company needs to sell itself. There's a long table. Board members are sitting there, they're discussing the issues, and one director at the end says, 
I would like to buy this company and, and here's my bid and I want the board to vote on this right now. I move that my bid be accepted. Is that a good time to have an independent director? I think it is. I mean, it immediately presents the possibility that the other board members are going to have to critically evaluate whether that offer is, in fact, the best offer that could be achieved. There's been no effort to market the company. There's been no effort to determine, you know, whether that number is the right number in terms of the actual value of the company, but no exposure to the market. And insisting that board members vote on it then and there, frankly, is going to compromise more than their duty of loyalty. It's going to compromise their duty of care. How so? Well, it's going to be difficult, it seems to me, for the rest of the members of the board to exercise their business judgment in any kind of a responsible fashion if they're required to vote on the matter right then and there with no more information than here is an offer and I want you to say yay or nay to it. I don't want you to evaluate it. I don't want you to test it against the market. I don't want you to expose it to the market for competitive bidding. I don't want any of that. If board members acceded to that, I think there would be more than just a question about duty of loyalty. I think now we're starting to raise some questions about duty of care. So if we take the duty of care out and we have the board, the board says, well, we're not going to vote on it right now. We're going to hire an investment banker. The investment banker is going to run a full process. We're going to canvas the world for potential financial and strategic buyers. And they get to a market-based sale price. There's going to be an auction. This board member says, I still want to participate in the auction. So it makes sense to one, let that board member see the other bids. And, you know, is this also an opportunity to have an independent director to evaluate both the process to sell and the purchase price received or sought to be received as part of the auction? Well, I think you certainly could involve independent directors at this point. I don't know that it's necessary at this stage yet. There are procedures for isolating that particular board member from the decision making process. Of course, he would not be entitled to look at the other bids and look at their habit inside track is essentially on bidding. You can certainly find ways to wall them out from that process. And of course, you would be excluded from voting on the process and voting on which bid would be accepted. So I wouldn't say that it would be necessary to bring in an independent director at this stage. It may help the process, but I don't think it's essential. So what about the use of an independent director to evaluate transfers made to board members in the past or evaluated board's past conduct? I think that's where the value of independent directors really does come in. Because at this point in the process, you're asking board members to make critical decisions about whether actions should be taken on behalf of the corporation that might be beneficial to the corporation, but would be adverse to fellow board members. Most folks who are working in this area are by now familiar with the decision in the Oracle derivative litigation case out of Delaware. And that is really an excellent discussion, I think, of the realities surrounding the challenges that are faced when directors on boards are asked to make evaluations that could potentially have an adverse impact on their fellow board members. It's hard to do that. And the judge in that case, I thought, made a very, very good point when he pointed out that the kinds of issues that we're looking at here involve more than simply adverse economic interest. They actually involve adverse human interest. There are lots of different ways, depending on the context, in which a person's independent judgment could well be compromised. Long-standing relationships, friendship relationships, reputational issues. These are all problems for existing board members to uh, struggle with when they have to make a decision whether a particular litigation course should be pursued against one of their own. It's a very difficult thing to do, and bringing in independent directors is probably not a bad idea for this sort of thing. 
What are some other circumstances, Leif, that you think demand or at least could and should involve an independent director? Well, that's a pretty open question. There are so many different kinds of things that can happen. And honestly, that's exactly what I was hoping you would say. And for the audience, this is not actually the rehearsed part of this. <laughs> this was a question that I threw out to Leif on purpose to see how he would respond to it. And the point that I want to get to there is that the use of the independent director is not cookie cutter. It is not a one size fits all. It's not that I can come up with in a 20 to 35 minute podcast, every single hypothetical that might necessitate or not an independent director. And so I see this and you know, react to this late. I see the independent director as being a tool in the toolbox for distressed companies when it is necessary to make sure that the leaders of the company are acting in the best interests of the enterprise without the conflicts that come from the financial interests of the board members, whether that's as shareholders or employees in the case of a CEO that serves on the board, or as Leif alluded to, their personal stake. I've been involved in many cases where the board members are friends outside of this one business or their family members, which can be even more difficult. And in fact, I've been in cases where you've had members of the board that are being called upon to evaluate transfers made to their own family members. That may be worse than a conflict in evaluating a transfer to your own self. Can you imagine evaluating a transfer to your son, your daughter, your aunt, your uncle? That could be more difficult, and that's going to have consequences that are going to extend beyond the amount of money that you make and all the way down to who you're going to sit next to at Thanksgiving dinner, right? Well, you jumped on my line. <laughs> I was going to say it would make for an uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinner, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the point, and it truly is contextual. And I'm so glad that you noted that it is not cookie cutter at all. Each particular case is going to ride on its own merit. But, you know, many years ago, I was working on a case that involved the challenge of uh, good faith in bankruptcy cases, a concept that is bandied about quite a bit, but that has precious little real parameters to it. And I ended up writing an article on it because I got to thinking about the issue and realized, you know, we, we really need to step back and think about this a little bit more. And the point of the article was that we human beings generally know when something is not in good faith. We may have a hard time describing what its elements are. And when we do try to describe what its elements are, what we'll come up with is something that's considerably less accurate than our instincts about what actually is bad faith. And I think something similar to that is at play here with respect to, to directors. You know, when you have that sense, that uncomfortable sense that you're going to have to make a decision that you're going to find yourself feeling conflicted about, or that you're going to find yourself wanting to pull your punches about, that's probably a time to to step back and say, maybe maybe we ought to be bringing somebody else in here. And it's hard to put parameters around that, but I guess it's kind of like the Potter Stewart's expression when he talked about pornography back in the 60s, saying that he would know it when he saw it. There's a lot of truth to that. We know, and this is what makes the Oracle decision so well, we know when we feel compromised. And we need to pay attention to that sense. And when that comes up, then it's time to have a candid conversation about maybe we need to bring some folks in here that are independent. So I see this a lot when a company is trying to decide whether it should sell itself or try to reorganize. And you've got a CEO that's on the board. 
Yes. That creates a circumstance where the CEO has every incentive for the business to continue forward because he or she is running the business, feels like it's been their life's work or it's very important to them, even financially from a salary standpoint. And the board is wrestling with, well, maybe now's a good time to go into the market and sell. Doesn't mean you need an independent director because those can be healthy conversations and negotiations and discussions at the board level. But it's a time when your ears perk up and you think, maybe I should consider the use of an independent director here. That's right. And I, I have seen this situation as well, probably not as frequently as you, but, but I have seen this situation. And it's difficult to push the, uh, the chairman of the CEO off to the side and exclude them from the decisions that then have to be made. A lot of recriminations that flow from that, a lot of anger, a lot of he said, she said, accusations that can fly around, litigation can break out. I've seen that happen. It is extremely difficult in a situation like that. And you may not be able to avoid that litigation, candidly. Sometimes when a CEO feels extremely threatened by a situation in which the company is is heading into rocky territory, the CEO will go into survival mode. Uh, The CEO at this point in time is, in some senses, not all senses, but in some sense, almost a liability. And it becomes really, really hard for the board of directors to function in that sort of situation. You still need somebody running the show. Changing captains at that stage is a pretty big step. If you're called upon to make that kind of a decision, that too may be a situation in which having independent directors would be particularly important. Leif, in getting ready for today, I did some reading. I read several articles regarding independent director usage and status. And a couple of the articles that I read suggested in the last, let's say, 20, 30 years, the use of independent directors had been increasing and looked upon with favor by the Delaware courts. And also that there was a premium when using independent directors on making sure that the independent directors truly were independent and could effectuate the decisions that they were called upon to make. So in other words, the the thrust of the article was, if you appoint an independent director and all that independent director does is report back to the board, but doesn't actually effectuate change that you might neuter the benefits that you're gaining from the appointment of the independent director. So let me hear your thoughts on that. You know, it's actually become a particularly pointed issue over the last five years or so, because as corporations approach the brink of bankruptcy or restructuring, then this gets to be a very, very big issue. And increasingly, there has been a move to reach for the independent director tool as a way to isolate problems, perhaps insulate the board from uh, future criticism about why they did or did not take particular actions immediately prior to or immediately following the bankruptcy case, and therefore raising particularly pointed concerns about whether the independent directors were in fact truly independent. Now I'm getting to the fun part. Fun part is I have a situation where an independent director needs to be appointed and we pick Leif. Leif is our independent director to evaluate some, let's say we're, let's make, it, let's make something simple, evaluate some transfers that were made to family members of the board. What is in your toolkit? What do you do as an independent director on day one? And what do you do on day one plus one and one plus 100 or to the end of the matter to make sure that not only you've upheld your duty of care and loyalty, but you've remained independent? Difficult issue and difficult because the starting point is how did I get there as an independent director? 
That's going to be the first real question. I saw an article recently that I thought made a nice point about what should be done in terms of evaluating the independence of an independent director or group of independent directors in the context of an insolvency case that is subsequently opened. Because during the course of the insolvency case, at some point, it's going to come out that the independent directors may have taken some actions to evaluate particular causes of action uh, or potential causes of action, such as transfers, such as this. And the question will be raised, well, what steps did you engage in? How uh, searching was the inquiry? Was it pursued in good faith? Was it, uh, and so on and so forth. But the first question that's going to have to be dealt with is whether you as an independent director were in fact truly independent. And that's always going to be an ex post question, but the independent director has to treat that as an ex ante question. The independent director has to assume that that issue is going to come up. This particular article suggested that it might be best practice for a case where bankruptcy is actually opened for the bankruptcy judge to conduct a hearing to evaluate whether the independent directors were, in fact, independent. To deal with that question early on, rather than to allow that question to fester and then turn into collateral litigation somewhere down the road. There's some merit to that, although I don't know that the bankruptcy judge will necessarily be in the best position to evaluate that. Still and all, it is bankruptcy judges typically deal with independent questions. That's the question they have to deal with, the retention of professionals. So it's a similar area, and bankruptcy judges might very well feel comfortable engaging in that, although they're acting essentially outside the realm of the statute. There's no statutory directive to make that determination. I can imagine being in front of the judge and the answer being, or the question being, why is this not an advisory opinion? Sure. And I can say, well, it's important to the case, Your Honor, and we've got independent directors that they want to serve, but they also want to make sure that you're comfortable with their service as independent, right? Right. And you'll have situations where they already have been serving. In all likelihood, the independent directors were not appointed post-petition. They were appointed pre-petition. That's the usual circumstance. And because that's the situation, they're appointed pre-petition. The question is going to be raised about what, if any, credence should be given to any evaluations they might have made with regard to the wisdom of pursuing or not pursuing particular courses of action on behalf of the board, either pre-petition or post-petition. So at some point, the court's going to have to reach that question. And you're exactly right. There, I can see more than a few judges, in fact, a couple in the Southern District of Texas, that would, that would candidly say, I don't see how I have the authority to reach this issue at this point, because I don't think it's right. So it's an interesting idea, but I'm not sure that we actually have the framework to do it. Well, if I can't thank you enough for coming on to distressed situations, this has been very fun. I do want to have you back. And when you come back, I'd like you to bring your guitar and I want to hear that lick live. (laughs) You're on. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. 
Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.